Welcome to the Been There, Got Out podcast. I'm Lisa, a state-certified domestic violence advocate and veteran of more than eight years in the trenches of the legal system, the last five successfully representing myself. And I'm Chris. I'm a certified high-conflict divorce coach. And between the two of us, we have all this knowledge and experience that we never wanted. But now we can put it to great use, providing expert guidance to people in high-conflict divorce and custody situations so you have the best chance in court and beyond. Having the right support from people who get it is so critical to getting you and your children through it as unscathed as possible. And that's exactly what we do through our interviews with experts and other content right here on this podcast. So let's get to it. Lisa from Been There, Got Out. And I am so excited about today's live with Leslie Miller. We have done some lives together before. We haven't done a live in a while. And we're really thrilled that she's agreed to come back and especially talk about something that um, is, is what many of us can relate to. And that's triggers and tr- trauma associated with going to family court and being in that whole awful process. And Leslie, I see you. Let me, let me figure out. Okay. I'm in works and come on. All right. So, um, there you are. Hi. Hi. So good to see you again. You too. You too. Glad to be back. I know. I know. I have to tell everybody that the information that you gave us in previous lives has been the foundation of what we help so many of our clients in terms of organizing for um, custody evaluations and guardian ad litems and how to, like I took my background as an English teacher and making a hamburger essay and your information on what to include and we have it all ready to go. So thank you again so much for, for your wisdom and especially for coming back today. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. That I, that's so great to hear that this is helping someone out there. <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, of course. And I know today's live is going to be really, really helpful as well, because you know that many of our audience is dealing with legal abuse and the chaos and nightmare of family court. So before we even get started, Leslie, in case they haven't seen you before, you want to just introduce yourself and tell a little bit about what you do in your background? Sure, sure. Um, So I am a psychotherapist in Massachusetts in the Boston area. I also offer coaching. Um, I specialize in narcissistic abuse, complex trauma. Um, I've worked for the court system, or I I did for about six years. So I I did um, a fair amount of court work through custody evaluations. So I understand the issues really from all sides, you know, um, as far as therapeutically and what's happening when you're going through a high conflict divorce, um, as well as like sort of the behind the scenes nuts and bolts. So many of my people are, my clients are, are either court involved or trying to get out of a, a situation. Um, or change a pattern of relational abuse, um, or work on getting better health from after years of going through this, they feel like their nervous systems have been really put through the ringer. 
and how do we how do we restore well-being balance and all of that stuff very very helpful and i'm going to ask you a question that just came in this morning that i know you're going to be able to answer that involves the kids because that's another thing i know that you you help people with is um dealing with stuff with the kids through this process definitely co-parenting um is is big it's um it's where a lot of the trauma from court leaves people sort of dangling that what do we do once we have these court orders and stipulations and so-called agreements that people don't stick to and i'm left with the trauma of trying to co-parent with somebody who doesn't play fair right exactly Okay, so let's talk about why is family court so triggering and then how that manifests itself. Yeah. Well, so when we think of trauma, pretty commonly what what occurs in a traumatic event or throughout complex trauma, which is what relational and domestic abuse looks like where it's chronic and it, it it's a it's on a continuum the the sort of what it what all of those things have in common is that it's a sense of helplessness and not being in control and that your autonomy is being taken away from you um court replicates that in the the in a very big way in the sense that you're you're not in control you're no longer in in control when you're court involved um the judge is going to determine your destiny to a large extent. So if you're already coming into a, a high conflict situation with a lot of court involvement and you've been traumatized by someone who's really controlling, um, you've experienced maybe financial abuse, legal abuse, emotional abuse, all of these things you are going to be likely further traumatized and triggered by what happens in court where you're not in control. Um, you know, these are foundational issues that affect your security and sort of the trajectory of your whole life. So, you know, your, your home might be in question, you know, do I sell my house? Do I have to leave this house? Do I have to move? Do I have to move where the kids are going to be living? I don't know where the kids are going to be living. So, so that's a foundational issue that, that, that sits squarely, you know, in, in our sense of safety and security, our home, certainly anything coming pertaining to your children it is going to be hugely triggering because we want to protect our children with our with our lives <laughs> we want that to go um in the best possible direction and it's hugely threatening if that's if there's a question mark i don't know what's going to happen in terms of custody financially will i be okay so the these these issues cut right to the core of, of who we are, how we live, what we can expect from our day-to-day -day lives, where I'm going to be living, who's going to be living there, will I have enough money to support myself? So if, if those things are feeling jeopardized, the, you know, the, the, the triggers, past trauma, current trauma, all of that stuff will rise to the surface. 
Yeah. And, you know, as you were thinking of, as you were talking about how, you know, we fight, we fight so hard, especially for our kids and our kids' safety, it's almost counterintuitive because if you come into court fighting hard and emotional, you'll lose. Sometimes so you have, yeah. Yeah, have to control those uh, like extremely fighting instincts. You have to temper it because you're in a setting that doesn't want to see, well, the, the fighting it, it allows is different than, than uh, we'd expect. Exactly. So, you know, when we think about trauma and we're in that fight, flight, freeze zone in our brains, the reptilian part of our brain that allows us to not really think about things and just react quickly, you know, where we have adrenaline going and um, a high heart rate to be able to run really fast doesn't help us think clearly and make a good decision. So if we are really triggered, and really activated that may not help us in court if we're not able to think through our answers if we're not able to think through our reactions we want to be really constructive in the way that we respond in the way that we're perceived that's the only thing that we can control everything else is really sort of out there yeah i just see i usually don't pause immediately for a question but i just saw one that relates to exactly what you said what kind i think it chris could you see it what kind of fighting mechanisms uh i think it's do, a, judges, usually do judges usually frown upon certainly your- angry i i would say disrespectful behavior angry outbursts um attacking you know talking out of turn showing up late um coming in dressed inappropriately where you know it's sort of like i'm gonna do the things my way you people don't care about me i'm not saying any anybody who's listening is doing that but you know i've seen some things in my time in court and and you just never know people respond to trauma and really stressful situations in ways that don't always help them they're not they're not not even necessarily aware that they're doing it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the case with a lot of people we know where they, they're like, I'm just I'm just fighting for my kids safety. I'm fighting for our lives. And it's like, yeah, but the way you're doing it, unfortunately, in this setting um, is not as constructive as it could be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tricky. OK, so how would somebody know when they're in that dysregulated state? Like, are there so, things we, we have to recognize? To say, I better I better catch myself. Yeah, that's such a great point. So when you start to work through trauma, one of the first steps in doing so is learning your own body and learning to recognize triggers and learning to recognize when you're dysregulated. So recognizing that, you know, I feel maybe nauseous right now or I have a stiff neck or a massive headache, or my heart rate is really, really racing. Um, Those are the kinds of things, those body sensations that you need to learn to recognize as a response potentially to trauma. And until we're able to say that we can recognize the trauma and the trigger, it's, we just kind of go into it head first without sort of pulling back and saying, wait a second, how can I nurture this in this moment? 
how can I reel myself back in in this moment um, and not just kind of become reactionary? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. So um, I, you know, I know we talked about how the court process itself replicates or mirrors past trauma. And so I wanted to hear some examples that you had, because I thought of three off the top of my head. Yeah, um, I, I think that certainly in a high conflict divorce and assuming that the lawyers are also really high conflict and it's not a collaborative process. Um, if you've experienced a lot of bullying in the marriage, you know, going to court is not going to feel good. Um, that person's attorney may be accusing you of things that your ex has, has provided them with, and, and, and it doesn't have to be true. And they may really try to hurt you with it um, to win the case and win the favor of the judge. I mean, that's part, that's part of it. The, the attorneys can also be, you know, really, uh, really aggressive. Um, and so you're not just experiencing bullying by your ex. They're, they're, they have a, a, a professional that they hired who is also running with their narrative. And it doesn't have to be true. Um, you know, so that is highly, highly, highly traumatizing. Re reading letters, written information about yourself that isn't true. You know, maybe you're going to receive something through your attorney that says you've been um, late for pickups or drinking during parenting time. It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't stop anyone from saying it. Hugely triggering, right? Um, certainly a judge that you're not sure um, you're not sure about. You know, you've got you've only gone in a few times and. Um, they didn't really give you much time. You're not sure they're really getting it. That's a really scary predicament to be in. A lot of times you have to be in court multiple, multiple times in front of the same judge before they're really familiar with your case. So you mm. go in the first couple of times and it's like, wait a second, no one's listening to me. No one ever listens to me. My spouse never listened to me. Again, I'm invisible. That's a trigger for a lot of people who have experienced domestic abuse. Um, and even childhood abuse where, you know, they were caregivers or largely in, invisible. So that, that can be a very deep trigger for a, a lot of people. Um, just the, the environment in the courtroom is so negative. I mean, you walk in and you go through a metal de detector, at least in Boston, you do. And, yeah, you know, that's a really unpleasant experience. Um Often you have to surrender your phone or make sure it's in your car or you don't bring it. I know for myself personally, my phone is my lifeline. And as soon as I don't have it, I feel really vulnerable. I'm sure a lot of other people feel that way. It's like, you know, I won't be able to text my friend who's my support system here or whoever's on the other side waiting to hear who, who, um, how this goes. So the environment waiting around, it, it can also be triggering. You know, ah. you're absorbing all the stuff that's happening in the room, in the environment, before you have a chance to be heard in front of the judge. Um, I know for myself personally, when I've had to testify and it's an all day event, 
I may have seen at least a half a dozen people get get a divorce before I had a chance to go up and testify. And it's very depressing. You know, people are crying. Maybe somebody's yelling in the hallway. Maybe somebody's yelling at their lawyer. Um, I've seen people leave the court in handcuffs. No idea why, but it's really it's really jarring to your nervous system to be in that environment so so vulnerable and and, and feeling like your life is exposed in this environment that's very harsh. Yeah, yeah. I know as we're talking, I thought of some words that like I remember when you talked about waiting, that waiting thing. I hate that. I I used to show up early, but I feel like the the moments before the courtroom opens when we're up in the hall and I see my ex and his attorney and I'm pro se, so I'm by myself and they're whispering together and I'm just thinking they're just lying. Everything is lies. And then also um, I was thinking about how you know, one of the things outside of family court, the, the, the building itself, but that a lot of our clients deal with and that I have experienced not from my wonderful divorce attorney, but from a subsequent attorney is when lawyers don't respond. So your own lawyer doesn't respond and you have all these questions and fears and you're waiting for answers and they don't call you back. And that's almost like the silent treatment in your prior relationship being replicated again. And so we that's have to explain yeah, to our clients that, you know, I know you think this is personal and, and maybe it is, but it probably isn't because often lawyers have all these other cases and every single person feels like mine is so important and they only have a certain amount of time and attention. But it's hard to recognize that when you are desperate and waiting for something, you know, waiting for answers. So that's really hard. I think that's an excellent point. Sometimes you're going into court for the first time with your lawyer and you're not really sure what your relationship is with your lawyer because you haven't been around them that much. You haven't been exposed to them. You don't know how they're going to do in front of the judge. And Mm -hmm. I I think that um, it's natural to absorb their sort of silence or lack of responsiveness and to, and to, and to personalize that, um, you know, the, that's the other piece of it is that you don't always know what's happening besi- behind the scenes, as you're saying, maybe the lawyers really don't like the judge and then they're not saying that they've had, maybe yesterday they were in court and had a bad experience with that judge or they really don't like the other lawyer or they're having personal issues or they have, you know, just from a purely humanistic standpoint, they've heard one too many horror stories, you know, on the domestic front, and they're just kind of checked a little bit checked out, you know, I mean, that would be a natural adaptive response to their own trauma. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times we talk about compassion fatigue, too, and people where it's like, they've, they've just heard enough, they just can't, and they're not really feeling it. Exactly. Lawyers are people, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine sometimes, but we know many, many wonderful lawyers, like wonderful human beings. So they, I, I personally know many fan, phenomenal lawyers. So we won't pick on them today. No, we'll try not to. Yeah. And then what you said about not being listened to, I had written down in my examples, not being believed, where it's just like, the false allegations and then you have all this proof and you keep going in and saying, but look at this, look at this. And, and nobody's listening. And sometimes even you go to your lawyer and say, they said this, 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 and the lawyer says, but that doesn't matter. So just yeah, having to be silent 
when there's so many false allegations and not understanding that some may not matter, but you still feeling like, how is it? How am I going to get justice if this is just sitting openly on the record and it's just not true? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then another another thing that I had written down was um, the gaslighting that occurs in court. Where and and outside of court too, I've gotten so many emails from one of my ex's attorneys where it's it's she's in an alternate reality. She's telling me that orders that I have don't exist, and I know they do, but because it's an attorney and I'm not an attorney, I'm always like, "What if she's right? Like, what if she's right?" Or they they have these completely false narratives that they present, and I just worry about it. But it's it's gaslighting. So again, that's an echoing of the relationship itself. And that's so hard. And that happens all the time when you're involved with family court, right? Family court is, is a, is a gaslighting experience all onto its own. Um, because the, the attorneys only know what's presented to them. They don't live in our homes. They have no idea what's happened. They don't know. A lot of times we like to think, you know, I'm telling the truth and my lawyer must see that and they must know that I'm, I'm okay they don't know that. Maybe after working with you for a long period of time, they st- and they've seen a lot of the evidence. Um, they they get it. They start to get it. But initially, they they really don't know. So you know, to be fair, the the lawyers only, you know as they only know what they're being told. When that person is gaslighting you on uh, on the other side, you know they've been they've been told what they've been told by their client. So. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. It's it's that part of it is incredibly stressful, and I think what happens in post separation abuse and throughout this process is that you're even more reactive to it because a lot of the electronic communication that happens between people on co parenting it is false. So, for example, when you're attempting to co-parent and somebody suddenly steps up to be extra, extra involved because the judge is looking at custody. So they craft all kinds of false narratives or involvement to show the court that, hey, I'm an involved parent. We get along. I went on the last trip to the the physician's office with um, my child. And so what happens is, is that, you know, the mom or the dad on the, on the receiving end of that, it's hugely triggering because they know they're being set up in court for this. So, so the gaslighting starts there. It's already existed on the relationship plane and then it gets carried over into court by their attorney and it goes in front of the judge. So it's a, it's a massive punch in the gut, really, um, that, that people have to learn how to work through that. Um, just because somebody is saying, creating this false narrative doesn't mean that you have to react to every single thing that they say. And that's where we start to lose ourselves in the court process, because if we're reacting to absolutely every allegation, every email, every bit of gaslighting that comes our way, we're going to, we're going to lose our way in the process. Lose our minds in the process too. Definitely. And and maybe your, maybe your health. I mean, I think that for a really 
for, for people that have been at this for years, you have to really consider that being in these highly reactive, um, emotionally dysregulated states often chronically and, and frequently really it's horrendous for your, for your health on so many levels. And, you know, you need, you need, have to be resilient. You have to be your best self. Your kids really need you, assuming that you have children and you need yourself. Right. Yeah. And so then you need support. <laughs> right. right. Support. Yeah. We always support. Say, like, you definitely need to get some support somewhere. We, we, I, I'm not sure if you know, we always talk about a table and the length of a table with the, you have your friends and family, you have a lawyer, maybe you have a therapist or domestic violence advocate, and you have a divorce coach to handle like the legal element. So it's, it's not like a normal divorce or post-separation experience. And Absolutely. Really Absolutely. Yeah. No, I don't think anybody should go through this on their own. I would say that as part of, if, if you look at this from a trauma perspective, and you're learning how to care for your own trauma. What are my triggers? What happens in my body when I'm being triggered? How do I react when I'm triggered? Do I want to react in that reactive state? Or do I need to enlist helpers to help me understand what I need to do next? Maybe maybe it's nothing. Maybe I need to sit with it and learn the tools to cope, regulate, de-escalate and, and, and nurture myself. And that's exactly how I recommend people do it is write down on a piece of paper, who are my helpers, my lawyer, maybe it's my, um, my yoga class buddies that, you know, that they're going to come and get me and drag me to that class because I really need it. And I won't go unless somebody (laughs) shows up. Maybe it's a a book club. Maybe it's your best friend that you can say, hey, could you just take a look at this email? I'm not really sure what I want to do here. And I'm out of my mind right now. Can you just look at at this and and tell me, do I need to respond to to this like right now? What do you think? Or or is is this threatening? Or am I just interpreting it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and write down who who are my helpers. Certainly have a therapist. And if you're going through a custody issue, you must have an attorney. Must, must, must. Yeah. That's not yeah. something you can do alone. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's talk about some more uh, techniques to maybe work through dealing with um, you know, impossible co-parents and situations. Like how do you how do you work through the triggers? Okay. So the first, Go ahead. Yeah. So the first the first step is is really recognizing them. So if if you're seeing your ex's name on your caller ID, on your text message, or in your email, you know, there's a an electronic communication. And every time you see it, you feel nauseous or you feel panic. Mm. Work on that do not respond to that in that triggered state. You don't have to respond to everything like you're putting out a fire, even if they're trying to craft a narrative that creates a fire. Mm. Just because they say the building's burning doesn't mean it really is. And that's something that you learned over the relationship. So you have to remind your nervous system that maybe the building's not really on fire, right? So learning 
Um, I recommend using grounding techniques, which I'd be happy to talk about another time, how, how, to, how to ground yourself. It's certainly something I've used in my personal life. And if I've had to go to court, which I hate doing, I'll use it. Um, or even having an unpleasant conversation with somebody or somebody you're not sure if it's going to be unpleasant. How do you use techniques, things like grounding? Those are things you can find on, on, on YouTube. Um, people can DM me if they want more information on that. I can direct them to, to, to places to, to find that information. Um, but you know, you, you need to, you need to have a, um, a self-care practice, a mindfulness practice to be able to control your reaction so that you can become the responder that you want to, to be. I suggest also taking out a piece of paper and writing down some canned type responses to emails about parenting time. Let's say you're dealing with somebody who always wants to change the parenting time and you're really afraid that the judge, um, if you refuse, they see you as uncooperative and or, or you're trying to keep the kids away from the, the other party. Write down what are what are what are my canned responses? How do I sort of cover my bases of what I what I really want to say? But I have a firm boundary here. And that I don't need to get into, you know, last weekend you did this and you said this and we, you know, that, that, that kind of circular um, chaos and, and non-communication that you get pulled into by somebody who's highly narcissistic and just really enjoys taking you into that. Keep yourself the heck out of that. Write down, you know, at most a paragraph. That is like the, here's my go-to for this situation. And after a while, some of these situations are fairly predictable. You kind of oh, yeah. know that, oh, um, you know, I asked for a favor on, you know, could you pick up at, you know, the kids on this day because I had, I had to stay late after work. So you knew you were going to get like three emails requesting, you know, changes because you did it right. Because because for every one thing you need, the other side needs like a, a lot in terms of payback. So anticipate, think ahead. You know this person better than anybody. What are the kind of things I'm going to craft that I almost, it's almost a no brainer. So I can keep my nervous system out of it. I can keep my logic brain engaged and I can actually respond the way I want and need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Even something as simple as like, hmm, let me think about it. <laughs> Can yes. work. Yeah, <laughs> buy yourself some time. It's okay. Yeah. That That's an excellent, you know, a boundary is there for you to say yes, no, or let me think on that. I need to hit the pause button here and think. That's a response. Also, yeah. no response is a response and a communication. Right, right. Because we know they love it, that engagement, whether it's positive or negative, because they just want to hurt you. They want the attention. So by not responding, you're not, we always say, feeding the monster. They really want the attention. And, you know, when you're, when you're responding and paying attention to, you know, their narrative, you're giving them supply. 
you're mm-hmm. giving them supply, whether it's positive, negative, or, or, or otherwise. So that, that's a, you know, always a good thing to sit back and say, do I want to feed that monster? Do I want to, you know, am I, am I in the, the place where I'm just going to give supply today or am I going to supply myself? Yeah. We often, yeah. We often say to our people, like you, you know, you need to get it out. So get it out in draft format. So we, we say we're putting you on the permission slip plan. So get it out. Send us an email with the emojis and the subject, you know, where they're covering the mouth or furious. And then it's what you want to say. And then we'll wait and tweak it or just say, absolutely not. And then we'll say like, okay, you have a permission slip that's granted because it takes time to learn what is going to be acceptable to send back. But there's time in between. There's an, a place to diffuse it to another person who reads it. But it's not going to the intend, you know, the person you want to say it to, but, but we don't think it's good to just keep it inside. And that's why I love writing. And I, I've been journaling myself since I was 13, but it, it's like, get it out, but not to that person. I think that's an excellent point, Lisa. I think that writing, journaling, organizing your thoughts, certainly, you know, if you're going through custody evaluations, writing all that stuff down, um, Writing, you know, maybe you're writing a letter to your ex that you're never going to mail, you know, right. um, and it's it, ha- it has a lot of value. It's it's like, well, maybe these things will never be heard, but I'm, I'm validating myself that, you know, it's something that needs to be said that I, I need to get it out and I need to rid myself of this sort of toxic energy that I'm storing in, in my body yeah. Um, that, that's, that's not serving me well. Yeah. I know for me, because I've been through so many court appearances that often I'll be up in the middle of the night thinking of what I want to say to the judge. And I know it's not like, I'm not going to be able to say all this, but I just get it out. Like, it's almost like this emotional vomiting. Like I have to get it out. I, I put it out there and they'll use like little pieces that I, that I do actually present in court, but it's just like, I have to get it out of my head because we know in these situations, you have so much in your head. And for me, it's always before court, but then the day of court, when I'm so exhausted after, you know, a hearing that night, my brain just keeps processing what's happened during the day. It keeps like, you know, going through some of the lines the judge said or what happened and trying to analyze. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that. Uh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes, actually. Um, yeah. And, and I would point out that per- the court preparation puts you in this guarded mode of, you know, you, you, you want to hyper prepare and be over prepared. Mm-hmm. And it, it replicates that hyper vigilant state. Like if this, if something unexpected happens, I'll be prepared for every exactly. possible scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, so interesting. And you stay in that heightened state of awareness long after the event. And, 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 and often, these things that we do to prepare are, are our coping mechanism to keep ourselves safe in a traumatic situation, an unknown situation, a situation we can't control. And that's what's so negative in terms of our health 
that when you stay in that hypervigilant mode, that guarded place, and I'm going to be prepared for battle for every situation, it doesn't, it doesn't come down immediately after yeah. the event has passed. You stay in that really heightened place, yeah. which is, you know, not great for your health if you're doing it all the time, right? So if we're devoting ourselves with that intensity to everything, you know, just imagine if every night you were doing that, not sleeping, replaying it over and over after mm -hmm. about three months, what would you be feeling like? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, something you said made me think of another thing with the preparation. Often with preparing for these these hearings or trials, we have to go through all the records and it is so traumatic to relive the experience by having to put the documentation together. It, it's very traumatic. You're rereading emails. You're looking at receipts. You're having a memory connected to where you were that day or what happened with your child that day. Um, who was affected by, by that event or that memory? Um, you know, some of the memories might be positive and that's painful, uh, you know, to, to sort of be in this place, like what, what, what happened? I feel like I got sort of hit by a train or, or feeling a sense of remorse that I, geez, you know, I see this negative file in front of me where it's, you know, a lot of lies and manipulation that you went through and why, why the heck did I stay so long? And that mm -hmm. anger and that sense of regret um, that, you know, you've devoted all this energy to something that, couldn't possibly be and, and, and wasn't supposed to. And that's very, very hard, very hard. Yeah, you know, even today, just, just coming over here, I don't mean, I don't know what made me think of it, but, um, but there wasn't, you know, years and years ago when I, very early in my marriage, my ex disappeared for the night and made up this whole thing about how he had gotten lost when he went and, and was gone the whole night. And then the next day, um, bought me a car stereo. It was the only time he ever bought some expensive thing. And I don't know what made me think about it, but I was thinking about it all these years later, 20 something years later, and was like, he totally lied. He wasn't lost. <laughs> he was cheating. Right. Like, like, right. Even now, like, it's like the residual, like, that was a lie. And I'm still like, it just popped into my brain. So it's right. almost like spelling all of these memories. Like you said, the hypervigilance state doesn't go away. doesn't, doesn't go away right away and even just the dredges of the past um will come back here and there sometimes you know someone will be in that you'll be in the shower and just think of something be like wow that was totally a lie i can't believe it like another little tiny thing especially during court i know because i'm still like dealing with all the <laughs> documentation maybe that's why it's coming up well it's it's um it's very true though that on some level you it's likely that you knew that it was a lie and you held that somewhere, you stored that yeah. somewhere in your, in your, in your body that, that, you know, it, we, cause we store memories physically, you know, um, emotional memories are stored that way, uh, which makes it difficult to access in your logic brain. So it became part of your logic brain when you were in a safe enough place emotionally to be able to to really look at it 
And that's a perfect example, honestly, of how trauma works. That often in the moment where, you know, you were in a place of survival, let's just get on with the day and get on with our lives. I don't know what happened, but we're just going to move on. Mm -hmm. But it never really likely felt right. Yeah. And isn't it amazing? All the, I mean, decades later to suddenly cross and be like, oh, that's what it was. But not to care anymore. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So I want to, I want, I have one more question for you or one planned and then we'll see what else happens, but stuff with the kids. So we actually had a call earlier today and, um, she was talking about an issue that I thought I have to ask Leslie because it's perfect timing because so many of our people deal with it. How do you handle when you're in the family court situation, when your ex is manipulating and involving the kids in the court proceedings by, by you know, because, you know, we're not supposed to talk about court stuff with the kids. That's a given in general. But where the ex is saying, I'm going to do this to your mother or father, like, if you don't do this for me, I'm going to testify and I'm going to say this. Like, how do you handle it when a toxic person involves your kids with court proceedings? Like talking about what's happening in court and saying that this doesn't happen. I'm going to get this and this person's going to do this for me. And yeah, yeah. Where the kids shouldn't don't really need to hear it. And they feel kind of like making the kids feel like they, they're put in the middle or they have to pick sides because they know too much about what's happening. Okay, okay. So so this is a really tough, challenging issue that there is not a straight, easy, straightforward, easy answer. It's yeah, sort I of multi... So. Yeah. That's why <laughs> <I understand. laughs> so, so this is this is information that you're going to, of course, provide your, your lawyer. The problem is, is that, you know, the court is structured for, it's an evidence-based process. They look for facts, evidence, and these are, these are things that are really hard to prove. You know, unless the kids come right out and tell like a a guardian ad litem that, yeah, um, mom told me that she's going to, to say dad did this in court or yeah, you know, uh, unless there's, there's actual physical proof of some sort. So that makes it really difficult because in the absence of absolute proof, what do you do? You cannot control the other party. You're not going to stop the other party. There can be a court order that you will never talk about uh, court and, you know, court situations with your children. I can't tell you how many times I saw that and people would be sobbing. They do it anyway. Yeah, of course they, they, they're not, they're not about following the rules or what the judge says, right? That's not going to happen. So recognize I don't control the other side. Yes, it's horrible, but what's happening is happening to your children. So you must, must get them into therapy. The next, which brings up the next bone of contention, you know, well, what if the other person won't agree to therapy? I hear that all the time. Do not Mm -hmm. be afraid of filing a a motion to, to request psychological services for kids. I've never once seen a judge deny a request from either parent to go to therapy. In fact, if you are a parent, if you are a parent who denies 
mental health services to your children, that does, that's not going to look good in front of the judge, especially given that, you know, you're court involved, you're going through a divorce. Why on earth wouldn't you offer your children a safe place to go to talk about their experiences? It's a, it's a no brainer and absolutely should happen. So the, you know, I, I think that when people refuse and it, it has to go to court, you know, no, I don't want my kid to go to therapy and it has to go to court. It's not going to look good. You know, it's going to get the, uh, the judge to think like, why wouldn't this person want their family life discussed? Is there something to hide? Maybe yeah. we want to take a, a closer look. So, so they're, they're going to need help because there, it, it's a, inarguable fact that that parent is doing harm and and the only the only way around the the damage being done is is to to have a safe place for for these things to be spoken about which is a, th- a therapist's office um i would also say that if you're dealing with that you've got to allow your children to talk and, and and find ways to respond to your own trigger that when they come home after spending time with mom or dad and you feel that there's alienation happening um, that and they come in and they have an attitude that you're not triggered by those things. You're getting help for yourself that when my son or daughter comes to me that mom or dad has said something negative about me, mm-hmm. I don't want to react and and be punitive toward the child and take it out on them because I'm real, because I'm really anxious about it. It's again, this is an area where you want to be, you want to respond in a healthy way. So it's, it's complicated. I understand it's, it's not a straightforward answer. It has to be dealt with on all the, in all these different spheres in the courtroom, your lawyer has to handle it. You have to look for evidence. If it exists, it may not. And you have to push for psychotherapy for yourself and your children. And don't be afraid to do that. Yeah, that's that's so helpful. I know a lot of times, like you said, one parent won't agree to it and there's legal custody. So they have joint decision making. And a lot of our, our people are like, what do I do? Because the other one won't agree and I can't just take them to therapy. But you're saying file the motion to do it because it'll probably be granted. If you're if you're if you're forced to fight for it, these are the things that are worth fighting for. You wouldn't deny medical care for a child. Or if, if someone had a broken arm, it would be pretty straightforward that you are going to take that child to the doctor. This is really the same thing. Mental mm-hmm. health. You know, we've been in a pandemic. There's a lot of information out there now that and and studies and statistics to show how poor children's mental health is at this point in time. To deny mental health services is potentially negligent. So you're that that is something that is worth fighting for. Wow, that's that's so good to know. Um, we're definitely going to share that, and people are going to see it on the recording as well. <laughs> That's that's very comforting. Good. Yeah. All right. So anything else you want to say? And then please tell people how they could find you. Yeah. Um, I would just say that if you are going through a a high conflict 
um, divorce, if you are going through any kind of custody evaluations and custody struggles in court or post-separation abuse, you need to get help. Work on your emotional triggers. Work on how am I being impacted by this mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, but it's really, really critical not to be alone with these, these issues. Um, you, it gets better. I, I, I think that people get very down about the idea that, you know, oh, I've been at this for three years or my friend over there has been involved in court issues for five years. And it, it, it gets it gets better. If you do the self-care piece and you work on yourself, you will be a warrior on the other side of this. And you have to remember that you cannot control what you can't control. You only control yourself. So keep the focus there and on your kids. Um, so that's self-care, working with People like yourself, Lisa, getting getting guidance, getting support, getting feedback. Um, and and if you are looking for coaching and you're not in, um, if you're out of state, so so I offer therapy for people who are in Massachusetts. Um, but if you need some coaching and consultation, you can contact me on my website, which is just my name, Leslie Miller, licsw.com. Um, I'm obviously on Instagram, so you can also send me a message, um, or contact me by phone, whatever, whatever works. And I'd be happy to walk through your situation and, um, help you brainstorm or at least point you in a direction that might be helpful. Great. All right. And you know, when I repost the recording, we're going to have your Instagram it's therapist, narcissist, the, the underscore narcissistic abuse, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. So thank you so much, Leslie, for your wisdom again. I, as you're talking, I'm like, I'm going to take that clip. I'm going to take that clip. <laughs> <laughs> thank so helpful. You. So helpful and always you. comforting you. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. It was great talking to you again. It's been a while. So glad to be uh talking again. It's great. Yes. Yes. And this is not going to be the last uh, collaboration we do. No, definitely not. All right. So I'll catch up with you later. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Been There Got Out podcast. Please leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. And you can find us easily on all major social media, but especially Instagram and YouTube. If you think we might be able to help you with your own situation, just visit beenthergotout.com and click the button to schedule a complimentary discovery call. Thanks again, and see you next time.